Matthew chapter 6, if you take your Bibles, please, and turn with me there. Craig, my brother, thank you so much, and worship team, for leading us in song and also in humming. I, I knew I was not that good at singing, but I am a really bad hummer. Thank you for reminding me of that. I'm so glad... I'm so glad that you're here. I don't know if you realize it or not, but at this very moment, there is a group of people that are gathered in my office, and they are praying specifically for you this morning. You see, this is, this is more than you sitting in a chair on a Sunday morning because there's not a lot of good stuff on TV. This is big what happens here because we know through... God's word that the Holy Spirit is here with us, guiding us. And so there are people praying that I would learn alongside of you that together we would understand what it means to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read to you the words of Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19, 20. And verse 21, listen to what Jesus tells us, where our focus and where our priorities need to be. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Listen to verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Would you pray with me, please? Let's bow our heads. God, I am so, I am so delighted that in your grace and your sovereignty, you allow moments like this. We are together and you are here with us. And Lord, we plead right now that you would allow our, our hearts and our minds to be turned towards you for our ears, Lord, to hear what the Spirit says to us. Father, I thank you for every single person that is here, man, woman, or child. I thank you, God, that you have called them. You are pleading with them now to follow you with everything that they have, with with everything that they are. God, I thank you that you've called us as a a local body of, of believers of Jesus to speak out in this community and to be salt that seasons and light that brightens. God, help us to do that well. God, I would ask that you would guard my lips and my mouth and my tongue from saying anything this morning that does not bring glory to the name of Jesus. I pray, Lord, for other pastors at this very hour who stand in pulpits and are preaching the truth of the gospel. Lord, equip them, empower them, protect them from saying anything would not bring glory to your name. Father, I pray, Lord, as we address a subject that is really no one's favorite subject, 
Lord, I've, I've approached this subject very, very, very sparingly and very rarely. And yet, God, it is important that we understand what it means to be followers and what it means to be a steward. Guide us now. We ask this in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen. Today, this morning, as we begin a new series, I want to tell you that it is really of, it is of utmost importance, not, not only because of where we are as a church right now, but where we are going. I found out that downstairs during, in between the services, there were 19 people that were in a new members class. Praise God for that. I also heard this week that there are six babies that are due, that are going to be born right here over the next several months. Special congratulations to Pastor Nick and Ashley, who are responsible for a third of those (laughs) babies. Excited about not only where we are right now, but where we are going. As we address the subject of stewardship, specifically biblical stewardship. Stewardship is the act of being a steward. And the definition of steward, according to Webster's, is this. One who manages another's financial affairs or property. That's what a steward is. One who manages is responsible for another's financial affairs or property. Have you ever, have you ever held someone else's property before? You understand the responsibility that you have? A number of years ago, I borrowed my neighbor, his, his name was Carl Oliver, and I borrowed his wheelbarrow. And I should have thought of it right away. As I wheeled it up to my home, it was kind of an old wheelbarrow, and as soon as I loaded it up with a pile of rocks, I snapped the handle off of it. It's not my wheelbarrow. What did I have to do? I had to go to the hardware store. I had to buy Carl a brand new wheelbarrow. Gave it back to him. Thank you so much for allowing me to borrow your wheelbarrow. True story. About a month later, I needed a shovel. I borrowed Carl Oliver's shovel. And as I was digging the hole to plant a little bush in our front lawn, I snapped the handle. On his shovel, I had to go to the hardware store. I bought him a brand new shovel. And I said, well, here you go. Thank you for allowing me to borrow your shovel. True story. I'm telling absolutely check with when I needed a sledgehammer. I went to my neighbor, Carl Oliver. I borrowed his sledgehammer. I broke the handle on his sledgehammer. He said, Tim, hey, the keys are in my truck. You use my truck whenever you want to use it. Think about this, okay? When it's not yours, you got to be careful with it. You're responsible for it. That's why if you borrow your neighbor's shovel, I can assure you, you're going to leave your own shovel out in the driveway. If somebody backs over, it's no big deal. You're going to leave your own shovel to get, get rained on in rust, but you're not going to allow your neighbor's shovel, right? Because it's not yours. Today we're looking at the responsibility of what it means to be a steward. Now understand, we are a church that has what we refer to as a high view of Scripture. You'll hear that phrase all the time. We believe this to be the very Word of God. God breathed the Word to us. A high view of Scripture. So we recognize God's authority in His words. 
And God's word says to us this in James chapter 1, every good gift, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father. We believe that. I believe that. Every good gift that we have that has been, what, given to us is from God. First Peter chapter 4 says this, each one of us has been given a gift. Use it to serve one another. And it actually uses this, this phrase, as good stewards. The word is okonomis. It means a responsible slave. Think about this. Each of you has been given a gift. Use it to serve one another as a responsible slave of God's varied grace. Therefore, understand this. As we launch, as we launch into this series over the next six weeks together, couched in this understanding of stewardship, what it means to be a steward is really, it's, it's an ownership issue. Stewardship cradles in the premise of ownership. God owns everything. And you and I do not. Now, what as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ means, what we understand that we are sinners. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a savior. The only savior for all of mankind is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We are to put our trust, our faith, literally our lives into God's hands who what cleanses us from all unrighteousness. To accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior means what we offer our life to him. We offer what? We offer all of our life to him. This, this little body, this is yours, Lord. This mind, this is yours. My possessions, everything are yours. So I want you to look around as we begin this morning. Your body, your home, your money, your time, it is his. It's not yours. You are simply a steward, which means you have been blessed with a responsibility to manage that which belongs to God. Now, what I have found as a pastor over the years is that we do okay when it comes to our talents. I'm not a real good hummer. I'll hum the best that I can hum, but God, that's all you gave me. I'm just going to hum away, and that's okay. Our time, we can manage that. There's one area that seems that we really, really, really struggle in. It's the subject of money. I've been here almost three years now as pastor. I believe I've addressed, even, even casually addressed the subject of money one time when I was doing a book study in James my first year here. This is not something, so if you're visiting here, please understand, well, here he goes, we're pastor, he must be preaching. This doesn't happen very often, but there's a need for it right now. People struggle to understand this, this concept. Let me give you two of them that will help us understand what it means that stewardship is an ownership issue. The first one is this. You can write this down, you can remember this. There's a direct connection between our spiritual lives and our financial lives. First and foremost, understand there is a direct connection between our spiritual lives and our financial lives. There is a fundamental linking of the two. There is what a joining together that exists between what you think about God and what you think about money. You may try to separate the the two, but I believe the Bible actually teaches us that, that the two are inseparable. 
A lot of people don't get this, but in this Bible, there are more than 2,000 verses on the subject of money and possession. Matter of fact, 2,350 verses to be exact, about the subject of money and possessions. That is more than the subject of prayer. That's more than the subject of faith. That's more than the subject of heaven and hell combined. Because God knew what? God knew that this is going to be an important area in our lives and this is going to be a massive struggle in our lives. And God knew how we handle money affects and reflex our relationship with him. And let me give you, first and foremost, a couple positive examples to show you that there's a direct connection between our spiritual lives and our financial lives. We don't have the time to read all the text, but I want you to write this down. Dads, I would encourage you to lead your families and read through this over the course of the next couple of days. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching. John the Baptist has basically one message that he continues to preach, and that is what? There's one coming. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he preaches repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We see this in Luke chapter 3 and verse 3. John the Baptist is preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As a result, by the time we get to verse 8 of Luke chapter 3, he actually says that people should bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Or what? We should actually show certain things in our life that are evident that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have repented and given our life to him. Now, as John the Baptist is preaching, there's a large crowd, and people actually ask the question. It says in verse 10, the crowds ask the question, well, what are we to do? What are we to do to show evidence of what? Repentance in our life. John the Baptist says this in verse 10 of Luke chapter 3. Whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food, share with him who doesn't have any food. Wait a minute, what's he talking about? In this crowd, there's actually some tax collectors. And the tax collectors, they ask the question, what are we supposed to do to show fruits of righteousness, of repentance? How are we supposed to live? John the Baptist says this. He says, collect no more than what you're authorized to do. Wait a minute. In this group, there's some Roman soldiers. They ask the same thing. What are we supposed to do to show fruits of righteousness, fruits of repentance? And in verse 14 of Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist says this, Do not extort money from anyone by threats. Big, muscly soldiers. You don't threaten anyone. And he says, you be content with what you have. Specifically, be content with your wages. Now, wait a minute. Every single answer has to do with the subject of money and possessions. And they didn't really even ask about money and possessions, they asked what? What should we do in order to show signs or show fruit of what? Of repentance in our lives. John the Baptist knew something. John the Baptist knew what? You cannot change your heart spiritually until you begin to what? Make changes financially. There's a marriage, there's an intimate connection between the two. 
we need to understand that when we think about this idea of stewardship, that it is couched in ownership. There's a second positive example in Luke chapter 19. Jesus is walking into a city called Jericho, and he meets a man. His name is Zacchaeus. He's a wee little man. Remember, remember Zacchaeus? Climbed up into a sycamore tree. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and he listens to the message of salvation that Jesus Christ is preaching, and he wants to respond to that. I want that. The first words out of Zacchaeus' mouth, it says in verse 8, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and anyone who I have cheated, I will pay them back four times what I have taken from them. Jesus' response in verse 9 of Luke chapter 19, to little wee Zacchaeus was what? Today salvation has come to you. Jesus saw his heart. He saw this man and he knew Zacchaeus was what? Zacchaeus was well aware of the fact the Holy Spirit was teaching him why there's some things wrong, particularly financially. You know what the tragedy is? I was actually in Jericho in October. In the entrance to Jericho, there's a sycamore tree. It's got a little wrought iron fence around it. And they believe, they don't know for sure, but they believe this is the actual sycamore tree that we little Zacchaeus climbed in to see Jesus. You know the tragic part is? Is that today there is an order of, of nuns, there's some, some order of Catholics who claim ownership to that tree. That once a year, as that tree is trimmed, they take the little leaves and they take the little twigs and little branches and they sell them to people to gain profit. This is the tree that we little Zacchaeus climbed up into just to get a glimpse of Jesus, heard the message of salvation. He says, I want that. I want that more than anything else. But what did Jesus say when he began his ministry? We began our message with it. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus Christ is speaking and he says what? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to focus on money and you're missing it. It's not yours. There's a direct connection between our spiritual lives our financial lives. There's a couple of negative examples that are given as well, which is very tragic. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus spoke of a wealthy farmer in a parable. It says a farmer that's doing extremely well and he spent all of his money on himself. He becomes so rich that he actually had to tear down perfectly good barns. They were just too small to build bigger barns for himself. Do you know what Jesus' response was? In this parable, he actually says, God looks at that man and says this very specifically in Luke chapter 12 and verse 20. But God said to him, listen to this, the very first word out of God's mouth directed to this man who is doing so well financially, so well. He says this, fool. God himself says, you're a fool. He says what? This night, this very night, your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Wow, that is strong language. 
Why? Because the guy's greedy. And the guy wants it all himself. I'm just going to hold on to it. I'm going to hoard it. I have done, I have preached many, many funerals. And I have been alongside of funeral directors and I have driven in many hearses to many cemeteries. And never once have we ever hauled a, a U-Haul wagon behind the hearse to go to the Y. Because you can't take the junk with you. You can't do anything with it. That's exactly what God is saying. God is saying to this person and to any person who thinks that you can hold on to it and hoard it for yourself, you're a fool. Matthew chapter 19, there's another negative example that is given on this very subject. There's a rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus. He has heard again the message of salvation, the message of repentance that has been offered. And so he asks a very clear question. He says, well, what must I do to have eternal life? What is it I need to do? Jesus responded to him, Matthew chapter 19, and says, well, you need to sell your possessions, you need to give everything to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then you can come and follow me. This is one of the only cases in all of Scripture that someone comes to Jesus and leaves unchanged. Jesus looks at this man and knows what? That his God is money and possessions. And the man simply could not do it. He would not do it. And he walked away unchanged, walked away from real treasures. People, you've got to understand through the authority of Scripture that your approach to money is central to your spiritual life. Why, why is that? Why is this so important? Why are we even talking about this? Financial planners will tell you that when it comes to your money, when it comes to your investments, don't think three months ahead. Don't, don't even think three years ahead. Wise investors would say, no, what you need to do is you've got to think about the next 30 years ahead. Well, God actually gives to us instruction. God, God is the, the ultimate financial counselor here, the ultimate investment counselor. And he takes it even further. He says, don't ask how your investment is going to pay off over the next 30 years. God says, ask how it's going to pay off over the next 30,000 years or the next 30 million years. That's why that's so important. Which brings us to our second major point this morning. There's a clear indication that God is far more concerned about your eternal state than your temporal state. Let me say that again so that you get it. God is far more concerned about your eternal state than your temporal state, which means what? God is actually more concerned about where you're going to end up for eternity than he is about what? The here and the now. We have to understand that. Take the idea, if someone were to come up to you today at church, says, I'd like to give you something. And they go to their wallet and they hand you a $1,000. I'd like to give you this $1,000. You could say, wow, thank you so much. I could really buy a lot of bubble gum with that $1,000. Or the person could say, I'll tell you what, I'll give you this $1,000 today. Or if you wait one year, I will give you a million dollars. Unless you're just brainless, there's not even a decision there. We'll say, what, I'll hold off on the bubble gum, and I'm going to wait a year. Yet, yet, 
That is exactly what people tried to do. In a sense, they grab onto something that they will try to hold onto right here, right now. And it's only going to last a moment. Forgoing something that you could have so much more and enjoy for so much longer. And so that's why it's important that we understand we must begin to learn about heavenly treasures. Heavenly treasures, that which we cannot see at this moment. Over what? Over earthly treasures. We must learn the importance about eternal investments and not temporal investments. Temporal investments, rust, moths, thieves. Eternal investments, it's not an issue. They can't touch it. They can't harm it. How did we learn this? A number of years ago, I was at a conference, a pastor's conference in Chicago. I attended a workshop specifically for pastors to teach churches and to lead churches about their finances and about the importance of, of stewardship. In all honesty, it's no pastor's favorite subject to address it. What they did, they actually gave to us, pastors love free books at conferences, and so they gave to us Randy Alcorn's book, The Treasure Principle. Randy Alcorn also wrote Money, Possessions, and Eternity, A Good Read, Dads, to Lead Your Home. And throughout that book, in a sense, they, they, they explained, they, they, they sketched out his desire for, te- for pastors to teach their church is about biblical principles, specifically when it comes to stewardship issues. Now, where we are together as a church, we have missionaries that we, we are going and committed to support. We have a staff to, to maintain. We have a building to maintain. We have building needs. It is important that we understand what God's word has to say about it. And, and Alcorn gives, he calls them, he calls them, um, uh, treasure principles. I, I call them stewardship principles. Let me give to you the first one that we'll concentrate on this morning. Stewardship principle number one. Here it is. Write this down. Remember, we're going to build on these over the next several weeks. Stewardship principle number one. God owns everything. And I am his money manager. Stewardship principle number one. When you go home over lunch and somebody says, well, what is it that your pastor preached on today? Well, I learned this one thing. God owns everything. And I am his money manager. We talk about having a high view of scripture. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world's and all who live in it. Everything belongs to God. Listen to what it says in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 8. The the Almighty Lord declares what? The silver is mine. The gold is mine, God says. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18 says, Remember the Lord your God. It is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Whenever you think for a moment, no, it's my mind. I earned it. I sweat. I thought. I got up early every day. No, God gave you the ability to think and to walk, to drive to work, to lift, to talk. God gave you the ability to do that. First Corinthians chapter 6. We celebrate this later on after the message at the communion table. It says what? You are not your own. 
You're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Which means what? God designed it. God created it. God sustains it. God owns it. It's not yours. I want you to see this specifically in Job chapter 38. I won't have the time to read all the chapter, but just listen to this. God declares in this dialogue that he has with Job, Job, who was a very wealthy man, literally lost everything. His wife says, what, just curse God and die. Job has this dialogue with the Lord and the Lord responds Job chapter 38, I will question you and, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Down to verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Verse 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know all this. Verse 22. God says, have you entered the storehouses for the snow? Have you seen the storehouses for all of the hail? Verse 25, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolts to bring rain on the land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Verse 33, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and to say to you, here we are? And God goes on and on declaring what? Here's a simple, basic understanding. This is how Job chapter 38 translates. The expanse of the entire universe, all of the stars, all of the, the what? The suns. The moon, God says, it's mine. The continents on this earth and the oceans on this earth and the mountains and the fields and the streams and the brooks and the rivers, God says, it's all mine. Take a walk outside. You see streets and curbs and streetlights. God says, it's all mine. The money in your wallet belongs to God. The wallet that the money sits in, that actually belongs to God's. The pants that hold your wallet, those pants actually belong to God's, not you. The washing machine that washes your pants, that belongs to God. The laundry room that holds the washing machine, that belongs to God's. The house that holds the laundry room, yeah, you're getting it. It's not yours. The entire neighborhood where your house sits, that belongs to God. Every single thing. It's not yours. Go out to your garage, see all the junk hanging on the walls, all the tools, and all the toys, and the kayaks, and the bikes, and the boats. It's not yours. Your own body's not yours. Your children are not yours. Your grandchildren, they're not yours. Your stock portfolio, 
your investments. They're not yours. Your family heirloom, your little china teacup that grandma gave to you three months before she died. It's not yours. It all belongs to God. You and I are responsible to manage it. A person who has a responsibility to manage someone else's finances or personal property is called a steward. You are a steward of what God already owns. Now you twist that up. And this is where it gets weird. This is, this is the image that I, I think of. We have every day you go out to your mailbox and you get your mail. Well, a guy could be a girl. Your mail person puts it in the mailbox. That's their job. They take letters. They take packages from someplace, wherever, and they bring it and they put it in your mailbox. You take it. It's yours. Matter of fact, it actually works in reverse. You can take a letter, put it in your mailbox. They'll take that away. You can take a package. Give it to your mailman. But think about this. Think about if you had a package... You're trying to get from point A to point B. You give it to the mailman to do that. And he takes your package, he takes it home, and he opens it up. You say, excuse me, Mr. Mailman, that's not the way it's supposed to work. It's it's not yours. What if the mailman said, well, if it's not mine, you shouldn't have given it to me in the first place. No, your job is what? Your job is to deliver the mail. Plain and simple. Do you realize that you and I are like God's male men or male woman, male person? You realize it's not our job is to simply move it from A to B. Don't confuse it to think that it's actually yours. We are God's delivery system. Stewardship is all about handling someone else's possessions. Think of it like this, that, that God has an account and your name is on his account. And you have, the, you have the liberty, you have the freedom to use what is necessary to get a house to keep you warm and dry, place to sleep and raise your kids. You have, a, you, you have the authority, in a sense, to, to buy food or to buy clothes to keep you warm. But you you don't have the authority to just do whatever you want with it or to splurge it or spend it or to hoard it or to hold it in excess. It's God. He has something to say about how you use that which is His. Somewhere along the way, particularly in this whole American dream thing, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, somehow it really got messed up that we think it's all about us and what we hold on to. It's not. Matter of fact, when people twist that up, that they actually think, this is mine, they just get like weird. They get unhappy and they're joyless. They can never have enough. And they're always worried about it. Somebody's going to steal it. Somebody's going to take it. Well, because you're missing the idea. You know, I think of are, are places, third world countries where people have very little. We can't even figure it out here. We have so much wealthiest society that's ever lived in the history of the world. That's you and I. Some of you have traveled to Guatemala, Cruz Blanca. You've been in the homes. 
I've been in some of the poorest communities in India or in Haiti. People have nothing, have nothing. And I've been in homes. Literally, they have saved and they have worked together. A bunch of women, I remember in, in a little northeast corner of India, they worked together and actually sewed by hand this scarf. It was of tremendous value to them. And they sat, they sat me down with two other pastors and, and they, had, they had made one of these for each of us. And they said, we want to give this. We want to give this to you. And there was such joy. It just elation. Because they're offered, we don't have anything. We want to give to you this as a gift. We thank the Lord for you. I think that's, that's, that's the way it ought to be. There is such joy in giving. It's God's own what? Delivery system. We have a responsibility. Second Corinthians in chapter 8, there's a small group of believers. They do not have very much. They have very, very little. And it actually says this in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I read that, and I read that a couple of times. How do words like severe test and extreme poverty even go in the same line with abundance of joy? How does that happen? Because they figured it out. Very next chapter, in Second Corinthians chapter 9, it says what? God loves a cheerful giver. Acts 20, we just finished our series in Acts. And it says what? It is far more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's how we've got to begin to understand what it means about biblical stewardship. It's an ownership issue. And we are to hold it very, very Lightly, with, with hands open, not fists that are gripped and grasping. Not only does it please us, not only does it please others, but it pleases God when we understand this concept. It actually jumpstarts our relationship with Him. I, I read it like this. There is a smart place and a stupid place for you to store your treasures. Pretty blunt. Alcorn writes that. He says, there's a smart place and a stupid place for you to store your treasures. God says, trust me, it will be well worth it. And so that's, that's the first lesson this morning. As we understand what God owns everything and I am his money manager. Trust him. There's a portion in Exodus, and we'll close with this, that the Israelites were so excited because... They were, they were building the tabernacle, this, this traveling tent to move with them that was going to represent the presence of God. And they got so excited about that. It actually says what? That they had to be restrained from their giving. People were giving so much. They actually said, no, 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 whoa, hold off. Imagine that. Imagine if churches functioned like that. Where people are saying, it's not mine anyway. And we want to use it to be a blessing. We live in a community that is so dark, that is in such need of the gospel, that we are to be what? We are to be streamlined in our thinking, in that everything we do is focused on how we better can communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to this community. Why? It's not, it's not ours. 
I love the fact that we have the opportunity this morning to celebrate the communion table because this is most evidence in what? God so loved the world that he, what? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. As followers of Jesus, we are to be what? We are, we are to love as God loves. And we know that literally God offered his own son to come to this earth to die in the place that you and I deserved. And because Jesus, when he was ministering here on earth, and he knew as those disciples were God close to him on, on the Last Supper, he knew that we would forget easy and that we would get moving fast. That's why he gave this object lesson so that we never forget that God gave to us his own son. Jesus, sitting with those disciples, took some bread and he held it up to the, to the, to the men and he said, this, this bread, this is a picture, this is a symbol of my own body. And he broke it in front of them so they could see it. He broke it and he said, just like this bread is broken, my body is going to be broken for you. For you. Jesus, what, also took the fruit of the vine and he took a cup and he, he poured it out. As he poured it out, he said, this, this is a picture of my blood. It's poured out for you, for you. I love you so much that I will give myself to die in the place that you deserve. There's a clear instruction from Scripture that we are to remember the Lord's death until He comes. We regularly do that. So that's why we at at Big Woods, any church that I believe has a high view of Scripture, we regularly remember what Jesus Christ did through the communion table. And so we're going to invite you now to partake, to participate with us. If you are not a member of Big Woods Bible Church, that's okay. If you are a member of the family of God, which means you have given your whole life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you recognize He alone is Lord and Savior. This is for you. Please celebrate with us. But can I be perfectly honest that if you've not made that decision, if you've not offered your life, if you've not received Jesus as Lord and Savior, Please refrain from taking this. Please do not take this. It's not for you. It would be meaningless. However, if you would like, at this very moment, you can make that decision in the quietness of your own heart. You realize this, this is not mine. I offer it to you, Lord. And I follow you as Lord and Savior. So you can do that. I'm going to ask the elders to come up to assist me and, and they're going to serve it to you. You can stay right in your seats. They're going to bring you first a, a, a portion of the bread and we're going to ask God's blessing on that and then we will bring to you a cup that represents the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And so we recognize what God has done and we praise Him for that. Would you pray with me, please? Father, as we, as we have our heads bowed before you, Lord, as a, as a physical showing that we are in submission to you, as our heads are bowed, we thank you, Lord, for who you are.
that you love us unconditionally. And Lord, you don't just say that you love us. You did something about that. You offered your son. We thank you, Lord, for this moment that we have together to celebrate the death of Christ, for his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out for us. And God, most of all, we thank you that Jesus Christ did not stay dead, but he rose three days later. And when we put our faith and our trust in him, we too can walk, forgiven of our sins, walk in the newness of life. And we thank you for that. We thank you for this wonderful reminder in the bread and the cup. We would ask, Lord, that you bless it to our bodies. Make our bodies strong, our minds sharp, so we can serve you faithfully in a way that you are glorified in Christ is magnified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It says that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It says in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.